You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we open God's Word, I just want to, if you would, we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your gracious love and mercy towards us. We thank you for your Word, which is the absolute authority over our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for your divine work in our hearts. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, which enables us to comprehend and understand and illuminate your word. I ask this morning that you would be guiding us in the truths of your word, which your servant Paul penned. And Father, I pray that through this, that you might be lifted up and in all of our service and worship today that we'd bring glory to your name. Amen. Well, we are in chapter 3, the closing two verses of Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But I'm going to bring it in context and begin with the preceding verses from verse 18 of chapter 3. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is to me, and I think for all of us, one of the greatest truths that we can comprehend and appropriate and understand. Many times people have a view of Christianity that is a a lower view and not a full comprehension of who we are as believers in Christ and what he has done to transform us and continue to sanctify us. The apostle summarizes this letter, which he began by warning of the evil workers and the false circumcision, the first couple of verses in chapter 3. And he also gave an admonition to these Philippian believers not to put any confidence in the flesh. Paul uses himself, of course, as an example 
to argue the case against the Judaizers who were trying to tell the believers that they not only needed Christ, but they needed to continue in the law to perfect themselves. Paul gave an illustration of using his personal life, although he said this, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. And then again, from 4 to 11, the apostle expresses those things to be counted as rubbish, as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. In 12 through 16, Paul then brings encouragement that the believers in Philippi should press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, pursuing Christ with all their heart, mind, and strength, and soul. Paul wants the believers to follow his example, as well as Timothy and Epaphroditus. They wanted them also to follow others of the same pattern. In other words, Paul wants us to look at those who are living for Christ and those that are mature in the faith and follow them, their example, as they do so in Christ. Paul, in this concluding chapter in Philippians, has given two closing verses, which D. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes in this way. It is a full chapter of great and noble things. It is a unique description of the apostle's own experience. His clear and unmistakable definition several times over of the Christian. And we have seen the seriousness of in <clears throat> with which he rejects the false teaching of the Judaizers as well as the antinomians and various other people. But above all, running through it all, there is an exalted and magnificent conception of the Christian life and the individual Christian position. Here, in these two verses, verses 20 and 21, Paul winds it all up to bring it to a glorious and magnificent climax, end quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones' position on this text and his view of Christianity and Christians. Some people view Christians as those who live by a moral code, a higher moral code than the world. They are in a position of serving Christ. They are regenerated, they're a new creation. Uh, 
They are born from above. But many lack the true understanding of being citizens of heaven. How does that transform our lives? Understanding that we are truly citizens of heaven. We live here on this earth. We're in the world, but not of it. This is not our home. We're transients here. Yet many are bogged down with the worldly concerns of daily life. We all have to live our lives daily. Some of us struggle with issues. Some of us have packful lives with family, children, work. Whatever it is that we have in our lives as Christians, we need to come to the fullness of understanding of who we are in Christ, citizens of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones also brings out something which I felt worthy of bringing in this teaching. He says that many consider the elements of prohibitions that we as Christians have. Some would look to the law and think of what they should do as Christians and try to live accordingly. But by doing so, they almost become as the Judaizers, trying to live according to God's word in their own strength. That's not who we are. Yes, we should reflect the glory of God in our lives, but not to try in our own effort to do so. It is God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is the one who empowers us to live this life. Christians need to consider that they're not citizens of the world, but rather their citizenship, which is in heaven. So we as Christians should not just be trying to conform to standards that are higher than the world's standards, but we should be living as who we are in Christ, citizens from above. We have a similar exhortation in chapter 3, but let us consider this final exhortation by Paul. The apostle now focuses on the clear teaching of the believer's true hope. The goal for pursuing Christ's likeness is the hope of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Since Christ is in heaven, those who love him must be pursuing and considering and yearning for Christ's return. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the apostle says this, beginning with verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we 
who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul was trying to bring encouragement to the Thessalonians, and in this verse, he was projecting to them the view of those who have gone before us, those who we love. All of us have lost loved ones, either relatives, family, friends, associates, and we understand the grief of losing somebody, but the hope that Paul brings is that of which is eternal perspective for all those that are in Christ. Paul pointed out the lifestyle of the enemies of the cross, and it was very similar to the antinomians, which Paul addressed in Romans 5 and 6. Those that took liberty and thought that they were believers, and the more they sinned, the more grace would abound. Paul rebuked them of that, of course, and I've mentioned that previously. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, Paul says this, In everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and left hand, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well, known as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Now, Cornell will be expounding this sometime shortly, yet look at the encouragement that Paul gives those of Corinth that were going through difficulties. Perhaps this is why Paul can say in the opening verses of Philippians, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul was struggling. He wanted to, he knew he would be with the Lord, and yet he was struggling because he felt that if he could remain, he would be a help to those in Philippi. So his love and his heart as a pastor was to serve the Lord and equip the saints. So his heart was to do that. For believers to have a heavenly focus, an eternal focus on our citizenship, which is in heaven, the word citizenship here is politeuma. It only appears here. 
This is the only place it appears in the New Testament. Though Paul used a related verb in verse 1 of chapter, I mean, verse 27 in chapter 1, and I'll read that. Paul says this, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. Paul constantly urges us to put our minds on Christ, to realize who Christ is, to pursue him with all our heart, mind, and strength. This verb carries the understanding of being a citizen, but by implication it means being a good citizen, one whose conduct brings honor to the political body to which it belongs, referring to we are in the body of Christ. Now, there's a lot of talk about citizenship these days, but our focus should always be on the citizenship which we hold. Do we understand that to the depth that Paul wanted the believers to understand? That is the goal of this teaching. Though the citizens of Philippi think of Rome as their native land, which they belong in, and it also has their records, and they are enrolled, they dressed like Romans, they spoke the Roman language, they were also governed by Roman law, as Philippians, whose emperor they served. But Paul urged the believers to focus on their citizenship, which was in heaven. In 1 John, John says this in chapter 3, verse 3, the hope of Christ's return has sanctifying power. Everyone Begin quote, everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself even as he is pure. The, ex- the exalted view of the Christian life as well as the joy that believers can participate in knowing that the eternal destiny is completely secure. No one can touch that. No matter what we have to go through on this earth, we can have our hope and trust in that very confidence of what our security is in Christ. Even in the very first chapter, Paul, in verse 6 of chapter 1, said, For I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That was the assurance. That was the understanding of God's sovereign power in election, his power to keep us and to enable us to persevere and finally to glorify us. From beginning to end, it is God's work. And for him, 
we give all glory. Now, Paul had warned, if a person makes a god of their fleshly appetites and sets their mind on earthly things, how can they ever expect to be welcomed by the spotless, holy, infinite, glorious Jesus Christ and his glorious return? Believers should be eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord. This should be an attitude of this should be an attitude of all believers and not like those of Laodicea in Revelations 3:14 through 16 which lived lives of lukewarmness but rather the attitude of faithful believers the citizens of the kingdom of heaven do not consider the pleasures of this world something to pursue <clears throat> in Romans 8 18 through 23, the apostle instructed the Romans believers in this way. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the cre <clears throat> creation was subjected to futility, not willing, willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What an encouraging text. Paul always gave encouragement to the believers. And yet, he always would bring reproof and correction when needed. His pure love for the saints motivated him as he served as apostle. Note in this text that Paul expresses the yearning of believers for the Lord Jesus Christ, his Savior, to return even Christ will return for his children who eagerly await for him. He will also be the judge of all those who rejected him as Christ the Savior. In the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul says in chapter 5, which is a text regarding husbands and wives and how they should honor God in their marriage, in verse 23 in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. In the context, this passage is instructing husbands how they should love their wives as Christ loved the church and give their lives for them. In Titus 3, 2, <coughs> chapter 2, verse 13 Jesus called our great God and Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, but also the creator and sustainer of all creation. Paul points this out in Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. As a believer, the Savior we have will deliver us from the final results of sin. He has completely paid the price for sin and paid the penalty for sin for all those who place saving faith in him for forgiveness of sin and restoration to God. With these verses, the apostle gives an exalted view of what we as Christians and citizens of heaven with the almighty God whom we serve. If we simply describe Christians as people who live by a higher standard and are going to spend eternity with God, we may be giving a very shallow view of what it is to be God's elect. The Apostle Paul gives this great exhortation in the epistle to Ephesians once again in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." Paul is projecting the understanding that we positionally are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's our positional spiritual condition. We are citizens of heaven, even in the present tense, positionally. His great promises that we have from God's word are sometimes eluded and perhaps not understood. We're not citizens of the heavenly kingdom because we somehow have taken naturalization papers. You can be a citizen of a country just by going through formal citizenship process. No, we are citizens of heaven. By God's doing. It's God's sovereign grace that we become born again, and as such, we are his citizens in heaven. The apostle has given us the contrast of those who he calls enemies, who are not citizens, but Christians in contrast. Though we live in a fallen world, we're no longer of this world and of Christ because what he has done through his redeeming work on the cross. Though we're seated in heavenly places positionally, we're still here on earth, yet we shall be with him in eternity, either upon the rapture or upon those saints who have gone before us will rise from the dead and be glorified eternally with them. So what's this mean for us our citizenship. 
Why does the apostle put it in this way? Perhaps he's explaining this citizenship that we have in heaven because it's in direct contrast of the destiny of the enemies of the cross. Remember, a man's treasure is where his heart is, and his heart is where his treasure is. As the Lord clearly teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, clearly unbelievers show who they are and whose their God is by their allegiance to the world. Christians are completely and entirely different in the very being from non-Christians. The first concern of all Christians should be that we are desiring the will of God and obedience to him. This is far different than just having higher moral ground. In chapter 3 of Romans, Paul says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Even though there's, in the unbelievers, performed tasks in the world that are considered good deeds, all of them are as filthy rags to Christ. As believers, we are empowered by God and created unto good works. We live under a different system, a different law, and our lives are totally in opposition to that of the world. There are some other implications of this citizenship. When the apostle tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, he isn't teaching that Christians not take an interest in the world. As Christians, we must do that, and yet in a different way. than those of the world. Since Christians are in the world and not of the world, it's indeed our home in heaven. Christians have the eternal perspective. The world has no hope at all. They live for today, and they enjoy the things of the world and the pleasures of the world, and yet their destiny is eternal torment unless they repent and turn to God for forgiveness and salvation. Christians live in a hostile world, and yet those who are not believers are at enmity with God. Therefore, they're hostile toward believers. We should understand that when we, in the workplace, in the public arena, even with our own members of our own family that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting how sometimes holiday family gatherings can be quite interesting, to say the least. I've had some very interesting conversations which turned out to be uh, not really celebratory, but... Uh, quite heated, tried to exercise grace, but uh, sometimes my flesh got the best of me. 
Our goal with anyone is to show the love of Christ and to take opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, in Romans 8.28, Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That he would be the firstborn among the many brethren. Our confidence and trust is in Christ. I'd like to uh, encourage you to think about what this position actually means to us. How do we live our lives? Is it daily that we are serving God in the workplace, in the world, at the grocery store? I always find it interesting Um, this week I had a very interesting example of the world. I was having to go for, to pick up some things at uh, Costco. Little did I know what it was going to be like on the day before Thanksgiving. I was making my way out of the store. All I got was a pair of gloves and I had my receipt, my gloves, and I was walking out, and I saw all the carts, so I just walked alongside, and behind me, someone shoved me aside, and a woman with a bag or a box of groceries walked with her young boyfriend or maybe husband, and she just pushed me out of the way and went up to the checkout, and her boyfriend or husband or whoever it was and looked at me and he goes, oh, excuse us. (laughs) And he quickly walked around me. I thought, that is the way of the world. It is about me and nothing else. And yet, we have a hope. We can look at these individuals, not with disdain, but with pity, really. This is all they have. That's in this world. What is that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a vain pursuit. And yet people strive. They battle. They claw their way up the corporate ladder trying to attain achievement, power, prestige, wealth. And yet they lack everything. All of us have numerous examples of people that we may know or come in contact with that demonstrate this life of empty pursuit. As I think at this time of the year, uh, when I was a medic, it sadly brought a lot of uh, trauma to those in the medical rescue and urgent care. Many times people will become depressed. They might drink or take some kind of medication or drugs and come to a place of total despondency. Unfortunately, many of them take their lives. I had opportunity 
when I was able to uh, render assistance and transport a victim of attempted suicide, I always followed up after the patient, if he survived or she survived, and always visited those individuals in the hospital. They were kind of a captive audience at that point, but very rarely did they want anything but kind of a self-comfort and a focus on them. They were welcoming to me visiting them and listening to them. And yet, when it came to the gospel, very few of them responded in a way that would show their desire at that point of brokenness. And yet we know it's God's work. So we present the truth, leave that with the individuals, and allow God's Holy Spirit to work. In this text, I brought... And I'd like to close the text with a quote from Martin Luther. This is from one of his sermons in 1544. See what honor and glory this righteousness of Christ brings even to our body? How is it that this poor, sinful, miserable, filthy, polluted body should become just like the body of the Son of God. I'm not sure that that would be preached at too many churches. The Lord of majesty, what are you? Are you what? Or what is your every human's power and ability that such might happen to you? Without a doubt, St. Paul says, human righteousness, merit, glory, and power accomplish absolutely nothing here. They are instead completely filthy, shameful, and damnable things. But here there is another power and strength, namely from the one who is the Lord Christ and who is able to make all things subject to himself. If he is able to make all things obey himself as he chooses, then certainly he can tra- transform majestically the filth and the stench, even the maggots, worms, and dust of this miserable body. For in his hands the body is like clay in the hands of the potter. Out of this fetid lump of dirt, he's able to make a beautiful, bright, new, pure vessel or body more radiant and more beautiful than the sun. In place of life of this sinful, damned, mortal body, he wants to give us and create for us a new, imperishable righteousness and life in both body and soul. This is the power and strength that brings and raises us up to such glory which no temporal righteousness of the law is capable of granting, which instead leaves a person 
with his life and shame and ruin. It can do nothing else, for it fights and lives for the belly. But the righteousness of Christ wields such power that we will see that we do not have the belly for our God, but the true living God who does not leave us in the shame and death, but helps us out of our sin, death, and damnation. He even gives this mortal body eternal honor and glory. Martin Luther, Sermon in 1544. Those words are as true then as they are today. God's word is eternal. This hope that we have in Christ is that we will be eternally with him in our citizenship is in heaven. And let me close with the closing that Paul gives in this verse. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I'd like to close with just encouraging you to truly ponder that truth and meditate on what God has done and who we are in this world. That's a transforming verse. It should transform our thinking, our view of those that we're around daily, and it should project us into the understanding that he has us here, now, for a purpose. We are to glorify him in that and recognize that we will be with him in eternity because we truly are citizens of heaven. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these glorious, encouraging words that you have given us through your servant Paul. I pray, Father, that this truly would transform our view and understanding of how we daily live, that we would live in such a way that would bring glory and honor and praise to who you are, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to you, we give all praise and glory. May you be honored as we continue to worship you this day through the preaching of your word, through the songs and hymns that we give for you alone. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.